0: Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel.
1: And I'm Alana Lewandowski.
0: Welcome to The Ferment.
1: Something good is rising. Welcome, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to our sixth episode, an interview with Kathy Kelly. Kathy Kelly is an American peace activist, pacifist, and author of from Chicago, and is one of the founding members of Voices in the Wilderness and currently a coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. As part of a peace team, she traveled to Iraq 26 times, notably remaining in combat zones during the early days of both U.S.-Iraq wars. Her recent travel has focused on Afghanistan and Gaza, along with domestic protests against U.S. drone policy. She has been arrested more than 60 times at home and abroad and written her experiences among targets of U.S. military bombardment and inmates of U.S. prisons.
0: And, uh, and I got to talk with Kathy Kelly. I, I met her first at a, uh, it was called the Clarence Jordan Symposium. It was hosted at Koinonia Farms in uh, South Georgia, uh, Koinonia Farms, uh, for folks that don't know, was uh, a racially integrated uh, Christian intentional community dating back to the early '40s. And uh, if having a, a racially integrated community in the early '40s in South Georgia sounds like it would have been scary, uh, it was. And so they were celebrating their 75th anniversary, and. Uh, I was honored to be invited to uh, do a workshop there. Kathy was one of the plenary speakers and um wow, I there's there's different kinds of power in this world and I I think my favorite kind is is the kind that surprises you from from unexpected sources. Kathy is a uh, is slight of stature. She uh she has, you know, soft, uh, soft features, you know, this long flowing wavy hair and uh, kind of a grandmotherly demeanor, but wow, just, uh, incredible intelligence and, uh, and backbone and, uh, very, very powerful lady. Also very friendly. We, you know, she, we got to talking over lunch, uh, one day and, and that led to, uh, the possibility of of this conversation, this interview, and uh, so I'm just, yeah very excited to share her with our listeners. We spoke. Um, it happened to be uh, uh, it was last year on the the exact day fifty years after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And so uh, so that was on our minds, and uh, so we're uh, we feel very good about releasing this episode on uh, on Martin Luther King Day coming up on uh, well it'll be when you hear it. Uh, listeners, it'll be January twenty first. Uh, one one more thing, kind of about the timing of the conversation. At the time, uh, the Yemeni crown prince was getting the red carpet treatment from Donald Trump and uh, and being toured around. And uh, it was uh, it was a good occasion to hear from from Kathy about uh, some of the the dark side of uh, of politics in Yemen and uh, and American and north american complicity in in that conflict and uh, and Kathy did supply um if in the show notes there'll be a link to some more recent articles on what's happened in that in that conflict since um Alana wasn't able to be part of that particular interview but uh we uh, we do have a song of hers uh, again that's uh feels just really really apt. It's, uh, the, the words are very simple, but very profound. And I think they do speak to, uh, exactly the kind of work that Kathy does and, and calls us into, which is, uh, a work of, of open heart and open eyes. And, uh, Alana, I just wonder if you could say a bit about the genesis of that song.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I wrote the, I wrote that song just, uh, in August, I think leading into August 2018, and was, I had been reading some Thomas Merton from, uh, it was an essay called The Hot Summer of 1967 or 1968. Mm. And I had, the first time I had read that essay was the year before when the white supremacist neo-nazi march happened in charlottesville and i knew people who were on the ground they mm. sort of holding holding hands and sort of in an interfaith movement of love and but also you know saying this is not okay mm-hmm. and um so there so there's just this kind of leading into summer right now as things just keep getting, it seems, more and more heightened. I wanted to write something for my friends who, mm. uh, you know, it's, I think that the more heated things get, the more things get more heated in the heat. <laughs> and so the line, God bless you and keep you in the heat of the day mm. um, was just sort of, Inspired by the hot summer line of Thomas Merton's essay, and and just how things can can escalate, and yeah, and then of course the the line is very inspired by the wisest serpent, soft as dove. Mm. Um, be street smart, but keep your heart open in the midst of it, which is the tough part. I think <laughs> it's so easy to just. Head down the cynical road. I just, you know, and I'm not even in the thick of it like like some mm, people. Mm. So,
0: yeah. So just what a what a perfect uh, connection. And uh, and of course, that hot summer of 1967 was was followed by, in some ways, arguably the hotter summer of 1968 with uh, yeah the death of MLK and uh, and a number of other key figures. So. It is, it is MLK Day today, the date of the release, and uh, we thought it would be appropriate to read a, a quote of, uh, of Martin Luther King's describing uh, what he called the Beloved Community, um, which is a theme that comes up in the interview. So quote begins as follows. Love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down. And destroys
1: The aftermath of the fight-with-fire method is bitterness and chaos.
0: The aftermath of the love method is reconciliation and creation of the beloved community.
1: Physical force can repress, restrain, coerce, destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that.
0: Yes, love. Which means understanding and creative, redemptive goodwill, even for one's enemies, is the solution.
1: Thank you so much for listening and for supporting our podcast. You can listen on our website, theferment.ca slash podcast. You can listen on Spotify, Google Play iTunes, or the podcatcher of your choice. Rate us on iTunes to help raise our profile. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Message us anytime. Email us at thefermentpodcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy the interview with Kathy Kelly.
0: Kathy Kelly, welcome to The Ferment.
2: Well, thank you, thank you very much, Marcus. I'm looking forward to being with you on this podcast.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's a joy and a delight to uh, to carry on a, a conversation that we began. We 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 met first at uh, the Clarence Jordan Symposium, where you were a speaker, and uh, and I was happy to do a, a workshop. And I I remember I I, this, I had never encountered you before. I I didn't really know who you were, and I, I I the impression I I remember is of this, um, you know this this woman of fairly slight of stature, um, walking up to the podium, you know, pulling the microphone down to 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 be within the proper reach, and you know a voice, uh, also not you know not a not a big voice, maybe maybe the kind of voice one would associate with a a beloved elementary school teacher, but then. As you spoke, I just had this this sense of a formidable mind and heart and soul uh speaking to deep and and complex politics and deep grief uh, in terms of some of the some of the places in this world that are really hurting and and telling stories of engaging with that pain creatively and non-violently and uh, I thought this is this is someone who I'd like to talk to some more so so thanks for agreeing to come on maybe for folks that that don't know you if you could just say a little bit about who you are where do you come from what's your what's your formative community um, and then and then we'll uh, we'll move on to some of your more current involvements
2: well thank you You know, I'm so conscious that today marks the uh, 50th year since the murder of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Indeed. And um, I come from a community on the southwest side of Chicago where um, Dr. King had tried hard to set up an open housing march, a campaign to integrate neighborhoods and schools. And he hmm. even moved into a, a tenement building and, and lived in the very, very difficult circumstances of people impoverished and afflicted by racism. And uh, he had to wrap it up. Uh, he, he finally declared that, that it was quite difficult in the North to try to work for civil rights. And when he was on one of those open housing marches, somebody who could very well have been from my neighborhood picked up a rock and flung it at Dr. King. The rock hit him on the side of his head, and the blood was trickling down. This was shown on TV. And my father, he leapt off the couch and said, the son of a bitch got what he deserved. Wow. And, you know, I'd always sort of seen my dad as the cool, calm, collected school teacher, uh, you know, kind of like Clark Kent before he went in the phone booth to change clothes. And I, I, I knew enough to know my dad was... huh deeply upset, maybe even frightened, but I i didn't at the time know that what I was seeing and hearing was a terrible racism and that that's part of the background from which I come. So my dad, I should mention, for the last eight years of his life, um, moved in to where I now live in what was then the poorest neighborhood on Chicago's north side, and um, he got to know many diverse people and um, probably the person he was in many ways closest to was a caregiver named Quentin, an African-American man who took, um, took very, very uh, great kindnesses uh, in taking care of my dad. Um, but it, that doesn't mitigate the fact that part of my background, my community is uh, a group that was very, very racist and hostile toward living in any kind of community with other people my mother grew up in ireland and i i recently learned that her father was a tailor uh, he and the other tailors made suits and you know it wasn't a, a a very prosperous endeavor but but you know people always need clothes and especially in uh, when the races would happen uh, every year, the men wanted new suits to go to the races in. Um, but, but underneath that, those tailoring tables, my, my grandfather stored guns and he would go to the shoreline and, uh, meet ships coming in smuggling weapons and practice more or less to be a sniper. Uh, and my second cousin, I, it turns out is an Irish senator and was pursuing a family memoir. So he's very, very proud of the, Irish Revolutionary Army history of uh, his uncle, my grandfather I am um, sad to think about young men um, as my grandfather was at the time learning to, to kill learning to um, smuggle weapons, uh, being on their bellies, pulling triggers uh, shedding blood uh, it doesn't to me uh have these us. these young men would
0: have been taking up
2: the, the side of
0: the Irish Republican Army in the Troubles. Right, exactly.
2: And um, I should also mention my mother had left Ireland as an indentured servant, and she lived uh, away from her family for a long time. And um, had she been born maybe a generation or two earlier and been in those circumstances of impoverishment, it's quite possible she would have only made it as far as one of the workhouses, and she might have been among the million who died during the Great Famine, or maybe among, if she were more lucky, the one and a half million who sought refuge outside of Ireland. And And I know that I'm part of a community that uh, has, you know, many times been hostile toward people seeking refuge uh, when... When we were in America's Georgia Marcus I, I know you'll recall Reverend Barber saying that some of the people who uh reject refugees today and say they don't want immigrants coming into the United States um have last names that sound very Irish or like mine and um would would those same people have said to their own grandmothers go back to the country yeah. in famine so um, that's a bit about my background my last name I guess uh Kelly Means strife, uh, and I, I, I want to claim that I, I think it is good to struggle and to try to work toward building communities that will struggle together to make a world wherein we can learn how to live together without killing one another.
0: Hmm. Well, maybe as a as a segue to some of your uh, current involvements, um, you mentioned the the Irish potato famine which was really an ecological catastrophe. And I I was struck uh, listening to you talking about uh, troubles, present day troubles in Yemen and, and really beginning that story with the tapping out of the water table, which again is an ecological catastrophe that manifests in, in great human suffering and upheaval. Um, what what are you What are you learning about Yemen? Why is Yemen uh, so dear to your heart?
2: Mm. Well, I think that in part, when I first began to understand more about the blockade of Yemen, it sounded terrifyingly similar to what we saw happen in Iraq. When mm. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1991, uh, the United Nations imposed the most comprehensive economic sanctions that were ever imposed in modern history on any people. And uh, it, within years of those sanctions first being imposed, uh, the the siege, the blockade, began to uh, have the worst effect, the most brutal, the most lethal effect on the most vulnerable people, especially the children, the elderly, the sick, the children. And, and today we see Yemen, a country where in uh, once every 10 minutes, a child under the age of five dies because of either a preventable disease or starvation. And once every two minutes, a child succumbs to very severe malnutrition and you never really recover from those extreme forms of malnutrition. And and Yemen is was already uh, the poorest country in the Arab world and in the Saudi peninsula. It, It already was a country where when the Arab Spring occurred, young people sounded the alarm. They said, you know, the water table has gone so low that farmers and ranchers uh, can't grow crops, they can't sustain their flocks, and they're coming to cities already overcrowded and overstressed, and there isn't enough sewage and sanitation or health care, much less water. And uh, the cronies, the the elites that are hoarding the country's wealth and resources, refusing to share are people who want to keep their claim on power, but we think it should be readjusted. And so, people uh, that were part of the Arab Spring uh, in Yemen were, I think, incredibly brave. And it's remarkable to me how adaptable they were. You know, if you say they certainly would never have even a tiny fraction of the weapon strength of, say, any of the armed government groups in Yemen but they knew that their moral grounding was, was very deep and very extensive. And so they started to use the tactics of nonviolence, um, unarmed. And they one of the things that impressed me was that the young people made common cause with those ranchers and farmers. And and they went out to the provinces and they, they talked with people. They didn't, you know, just say, well, we're the academics or we're the artists or we're sort of a class or a caste of our own. They really crossed borders, um, in terms of, uh, vocation and experience. And, and, and they understood that a lot of people who lived in the provinces and the more remote areas hardly ever left their home without their guns. And it was hard for people to say, okay, we'll put down the guns. We'll experiment with, Walking unarmed and going up you know into areas that where we we could be um, treated very very badly, we could be arrested, we could be tortured, we could be killed, and they took risks together, and their numbers grew, and they became a very, very strong group and uh as it turned out at one point they they were fired on uh plain clothes men with rifles from rooftops uh shot into a huge assembly of people in the Capital city called San'a, and 50 people were killed. And there could have been complete chaos, you know, they, they, they could have lost their momentum and been exploited terribly, but instead they kept together and they organized themselves to do a walk, a 200-kilometer walk between the city of Taz and San'a. And this, I think, was to their credit, you know they they then found that when some of their colleagues were imprisoned, people were re- ready to experiment with a long fast. Uh, they raised their voices, they used graffiti, video art, um, singing, music. The young women, you know, they did need to wear a very conservative dress when they'd be outside. But in order to show their solidarity, they wore baseball caps over their abayas, their dark black abayas, um, They that were the colors of the Yemeni flag, and they marched in the thousands. But, mm. you know, those young people were making sense. They should have been listened to. They should have been heard. Their voices should have been part of negotiations because a group called the Gulf Corporation Council that was very much supported by the United States um, decided, okay, the dictator, uh, Ali Abdullah Sa'a, um, was the dictator for 33 years, and they convinced him he should move out. And he said, Okay, I'll leave, but we're going to appoint my deputy, and that this was Abdrabu Mansur Hadi. And with that decision, um, the Gulf Corporation Council and the deputy minister uh, maintained uh, really basically a replication of the unjust, unfair, and cruel policies that had gone before. And so civil war broke out. And after that, it was very dangerous, exceedingly dangerous for people to speak up, to speak out. There were people being taken hostage, people being imprisoned, people being mm. tortured. And today, uh, those cities that I mentioned, are uh, reporters say that it's like an apocalypse. Um, mm. People are being shelled from both sides of conflict aerial bombardments from the Saudi-led coalition, bombing buses, bombing roadways, bombing sewage and sanitation facilities, mosques, schools, even hospitals. And the United States is bombing people it targets as being part of Al-Qaeda. And the United States is supporting Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in their air attacks, mm. even refueling the planes in mid-air, uh, So that, as General Mattis sees it, the pilots will have more time they won't be nervous and they'll have more time to be precise but that's ridiculous Mm. because the um saudi planes fly out of saudi airspace over yemen they bomb places even a funeral with 149 people present was bombed and then they fly back and they refuel and they go out and do more bombing
0: wow and and as we speak of course a saudi crown prince is uh is just wrapping up a tour of the united states uh having uh, been received on the, the red carpet by the president wow i there's just so much there that is is uh to be just sat with and and you know tr- truth to, that one has to face uh into uh that we don't typically hear much of a couple of impressions i think i want to pull out well, well, one is, like, I'm, I'm struck that a people who are poor and poorly armed end up, for pragmatic reasons, uh, it seems, you seem to be suggesting, almost, choosing the very difficult disciplines of nonviolence as a kind of experiment. I mean, that's a very, that's an expensive experiment. That's, a, that's an experiment you make with your life on the line. And and I'm I'm struck by uh, perhaps the contrast with many of us who may have a, a, a religious or a philosophical education in in nonviolence, but who find ourselves in in places of privilege and and find even uh, much more meager experiments in nonviolence too expensive for our liking. I wonder about asking you i didn't I didn't mention this uh w- in introducing you that you were one of a number of Americans who decided to stay in Baghdad uh during the aerial bombardment of of the gulf War as as a member of what was then was that was Christian peacemaker teams or
2: was it voices in the wilderness or was that the same thing at the time uh-huh well we initially were there as voices in the wilderness because we wanted to break the economic sanctions. And so we had organized, I think, 70 delegations. And after so many times going over there and, you know, people saying, come stay in our homes, sleep on our rooftops, hold our children, you know, share our meager resources. We, we couldn't imagine like, you know, flashing our blue passports and saying, well, it's getting dangerous. We're going to get out of here. But meanwhile, the Christian peacemaker team, ever visionary, had the idea that what if grandparents? Went over to Baghdad. Mm. You know, would would how would Americans react if there were, you know, a lot of people who were elderly, um, you know, granarchists, I suppose. Uh, but it, it was a good idea, and so not just uh, the elderly, but many people um, applied and wanted to join the what we call the Iraq Peace Team. It was a combination of CPT and Voices. And because, you know, in a war zone, um, there are many ways that we can blunder and, um, you know, maybe sometimes cause uh, more problems. And we didn't want to do that. We'd had experience Mm. in the past of sometimes uh, not getting it right exactly in terms of trying to um, sort of really know who was going to be part of an effective teamwork so, um, th- there were many people that wanted to go, and we, we had a team of people at CPT and also at Voices, uh, you know, kind of interviewing and talking with people and, and, and helping them to be oriented and get ready. Uh, so, um, the, well, the experiment is one that has been tried in several different contexts, and I really do believe in it. I believe in people not being human shields. But in people saying, um, you know, your life is as valuable as my life, my life is no mm. more valuable than mm. your life. But many people in our countries that we come from don't really understand the consequences of war uh you know, it looks like a video game almost or it looks as though yeah, like so there's only yeah. one person that lived in Iraq, Saddam Hussein. So I, I think part of the value of having these peace teams is in people being able to to write and to speak and to communicate and use as many means as they possibly can to say these are real human beings, you know, we're not embedded with any military. We're we're living alongside families that can't escape and, and that are totally terrified. Every time a bomb explodes, and when they arrive in emergency rooms and their children's bodies are torn apart, they're filled with a grief that will never go away.
0: That's such a simple and such a profound principle that your life is as mu- is worth as much as an Iraqi's life. It's, I, I mean, it's it's on the face of it, it just sounds straightforward. But if I, I mean, e- e- even myself, I you know. I, you know, just now I was, I was thinking about your bravery, and and of course it was tremendous bravery for you to enter into that situation voluntarily. But what I mean, what I hear you saying is that everyone there is living into extraordinary and and terrifying uh, realities. Mm-hmm. You
2: know, uh, huh. in Afghanistan, the person who is the mentor for the Afghan peace volunteers a medical doctor from Singapore, the, the kids call him Hakim. He um, has been living alongside people who've been uprooted by war, displaced by war, fled from war for now close to three decades. And one thing that mm. that he helped me understand is that in many ways, the choice to seek refuge, to flee, if, if, if it's possible, is often an option for non-violence because if you stay um, and if you're killed then your family perhaps might want to exact revenge or the spiral might be continued um, you might end up out of self-defense uh, needing to pick up a gun and be part of uh, the fighting but but the ch- the choice to to run could actually be a nonviolent option and and so you have so many people now in afghanistan in iraq Uh, now in Yemen, who have fled from very, very dire conditions. And in many ways, I think they're exemplifying a nonviolent option. They don't want to be involved in killing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's another, I mean, that's not typically how I think about, I I think of refugees as people that don't want to be involved in getting killed. But yeah, it is is a life affirming and um, it, it is a move away from violence. I, I want to ask you. Uh, so back to the back to how people get into nonviolence. You, you've sort of traced a few paths for us. How did this become your path? Is this something that you? I mean, when when did people start educating you? In it, it sounds like your family of origin wasn't necessarily uh, one that would have been encouraging you to to get involved in in nonviolent direct action. Uh, around the world. H- how did you k- stumble into this vocation?
2: Well, I I was, you know, in many ways, uh, someone who was raised in an extremely secure environment. Uh, we didn't realize how racist it was when we were children, I don't think. Um, and so in in the simplicity of childhood... We felt like we were surrounded by um, people who were all, you know, in, in our corner. You know, wanting the best for us, mom, dad, the nuns, the parish priests, officer friendly. It, it just seemed like everybody just wanted us to be um, happy and uh, effective young people. So that that was something I'm I'm, I'm grateful for, and in in that environment um you know we were i don't know maybe upper lower class or lower middle class on the charts um it certainly wasn't a wealthy environment, but the people who are our role models when I was a child um were basically um the nuns the nuns <laughs> were in charge of the parish they were in charge of the school they were they were the authority figures and um yeah. I didn't meet uh unkind or or, or um, violent nuns ever. I know you hear stories, but the ones that I met that taught me were people whom I, I greatly admired. And, and you could see that they never uh, s- exhibited even the slightest interest in acquiring personal wealth. They mm. had no salaries. They shared everything in common. They wore the same clothing. They um, lived in Spartan quarters and, you know, nobody had more than somebody else. And, you know, um, I, I, I don't want to romanticize what per, for some was probably a very difficult and demanding life, but I do want to say that it taught a good lesson. So eventually mm-hmm. there came a time in my own life when I, I just couldn't, um, continue as though it were normal to pay for war we in the cold war there was a point when it really seemed believable to many people and to me that maybe the united states and the then soviet union would uh, start lobbing missiles at yeah. each other and yeah. it could be the end of the planet you know we we yeah. saw horrific films and we we knew what had happened in hiroshima and nagasaki and and, and so much money was being poured into babying and pampering these Intercontinental ballistic missiles buried mm. under the ground. And, and meanwhile, you know, we could see in my own neighborhood, um, teenagers couldn't survive their, their teenage years because there was so much, um, violence and impoverishment in their young lives. So, um, I didn't want to pay for war anymore. And I, uh, I finally found, uh, in, in the community that I'd moved into, that, that I didn't have to, that I could become a war tax refuser. And I think that's, in some ways, if you become a war tax refuser and you really seriously are never going to pay the money for the weapons, then the IRS becomes like your spiritual director. <laughs> you can't own anything <laughs> because they can take it and then it's, it's pointless to continue with the endeavor. So, so I think that, um, that, helped. That, that they
0: ensured your vow of poverty, did they? Yeah.
2: they. And it, it was easy because there were so many people whom I liked and admired and enjoyed who were in a similar circumstance. And, and, and we, we, we just weren't very interested in getting cars or houses or, you know, some of the status comforts, I guess. Uh, and.
0: What, was this, was this a, um, Semi monastic community, or what you said, the community you we mm. joined.
2: Well, we we were certainly a community that that needed the kind of uh, fuel or refueling that came with with our, our community prayer life. We definitely needed that and relied on it, and probably took it for granted in some ways. Uh, there was a Catholic Worker House of Hospitality. There was a parish soup kitchen, uh, a, sh- a community shelter. Um, there were many, many needs, uh, mm. and, and it took a lot of energy to try to meet just neighborhood needs. And we also, we were altruistic and idealistic and we, we wanted to stop United States intervention in Central America and we wanted to pursue disarmament. And so I, I think we were, um, a community of need, but we were very much uh, centered on, on coming together for prayer. Uh, mostly through liturgies on a Sunday, but also, you know, in smaller community gatherings, uh, the Jesuit Volunteer Corps were very much a part of the group. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for that time. I look back upon it with enormous fondness. And then
0: uh, somewhere along the way that drew you out into larger adventures, uh, I, w- one adventure in jail, as I understand. Uh, let's let's start there,
2: perhaps. Well, I think that um, every prison should be taken apart brick by brick. I, I, I'm no, no pass. <laughs> I'm not going to give a pass to any detention facility, private prison, federal prison, state prison, county jail. I think that we should say abolish all prisons and abolish all war. But I do have to acknowledge that uh, a year spent in maximum security prison, um, well actually 9 months in the maximum security prison and then um, county jails leading up to that imprisonment did uh, give me a, somehow a little more backbone it's it's difficult for me to be clear about that huh. um, yeah. but i suppose i knew that if if i didn't believe in something the threat of being put in jail to compromise my beliefs wouldn't that wouldn't be enough to make me change and then when it seemed so clear that the United States was going to go to war against Iraq, and, and I firmly believe that the, you know, the United States itself had invaded other countries, had um, overturned other governments, um, uh, taken other people's resources. So why would we uh, find it rightful to wage a war of choice against a whole people that were under the governance of a dictator. And, um, when the dictator had done things that we ourselves had done through our government. So I wanted to oppose that war and, and learned about a group that was going to interpose itself between the warring parties. And I thought, well, that sounds about right. And, um, I did, I did join that group. We were called the Gulf Peace Team. And we, in 1991, stayed in Iraq through the 1991 war and then tried to, um, do a little hmm. s- of work to, uh, protect roadways toward the end of the war by, by riding in convoys back and forth. And, and the purpose of the convoy, we told the United Nations, was to deliver medicines and medical relief. Um, so that began to raise awareness amongst an, quite a number of people about the impact of the economic sanctions. And then I'm sorry to say I came back to the United States and although you know we in that Gulf Peace team had a pretty strong impression of the suffering people in Iraq were undergoing we didn't uh, do anything to try to stop what turned out to be a more brutal and more cruel war than the bombing war the economic war you know robbed mm, the lives yeah. of yeah. hundreds of thousands of children but finally in 19 19- uh 95 two religious women uh Eileen story and Anne Montgomery kept calling and saying you know somebody ought to try to do something and and, and a number of people said you know they're right so it, it, yeah. we we did form voices in the wilderness and that's what occasioned many many trips over to Iraq and then eventually staying there um during the shock and awe bombing and uh, and and I think out of that there grew a community, uh, along with CPT, that was willing to go to other war zones as well and say we should live alongside people who can't escape from these wars, and try to you know build literacy, build awareness about the consequences oh, yeah. of our weaponry and our our warlordism.
0: And so your life now is, how how much are you back and forth to the Middle East and America? With with being present in in conflict and then coming home to to educate. Mm.
2: Well, it's changed lately, Marcus. Um, we began to um, well well. Let me say that a Pakistani imam, Imam Abdul Malik Mujahid, is here in Chicago, and and he's always been somebody who. Um, encourages us and and challenges us. And Mm. so we had decided to do a walk from Chicago to Minneapolis. It was was quite a distance uh, at the time of a a Republican National Convention being held in Minneapolis. And we asked um, Imam Malik to sort of give us his blessing as we set forth. And he said, well, um, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to tell you something you might not want to hear and, you know, our ears were perked up. And he said, in all of these years, uh, I have never once heard you and your friends mention Afghanistan or Pakistan. And hmm. the United States has been at war with people in Afghanistan ever since 2001. So we, we realized, you know, we, we, we certainly had been neglectful of the consequences of that ongoing war. And so we, we decided, um, that we would certainly try to respond to his challenge. And this, this began, um, at the time that a number of people were becoming more aware of drone warfare as well and the impact of using the, um, unmanned aerial vehicles to both do surveillance, but also, uh, fire laser guided missiles and drop 500 pound bombs on people that were targeted as supposed enemies. And so we started to tr- visit Pakistan and then, uh, from there moved over to visiting Afghanistan because, um, some young teenagers in a, in a remote rural province of Afghanistan got in touch with us and they said, you know, we're fasting with you. When you fast because you want to close down Guantanamo, we're in a tent on the mountainside and, and we're mm. fasting too. And we couldn't believe it. <laughs> and, um,
0: they were somehow it, aware of your, activities
2: yeah and 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 we weren't so aware of them and so then we thought well we want to visit you is that possible and so then we did go to bamyan a number of us and we we met with the afghan peace volunteers and and realized that these youngsters were emblematic of values that we hoped the whole world would embrace and there they Hmm. were in in one of the most um, isolated places in the world Really trying to overcome the differences, the tribal and ethnic differences that led to war. They were trying to live together interethnically, to study together, and work out projects they could do together. Um, Tajik, Hazara, Pashto, and so um, I, you know, I never would have expected that um, after you know teaching high school for maybe some years of my life that um, now that I'm in my sixties, I'd I'd find that my main mentors are a group of 12 and 13 year olds but wow uh, these kids have had a tremendous impact on all of the people who have gone over to visit them and and so um, we've uh, we've tried to be uh, of service to them also in the sense of um, amplifying their voices but also they, they they have started some very worthwhile projects and so we've raised money to help with those projects too
1: all right half time This is when we open up the virtual guitar case. Pass around the virtual collection plate.
0: If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it. But we also love our families.
1: The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good
0: click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference.
1: Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar.
0: Enough said. Back to the reason you're here, and we're here today. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on... The dynamics between violence and religion, it strikes me that, I mean, you're coming out of, you know, a, a specifically uh, spiritually formed tradition uh, that was, you know, you talked about a prayer life that, that fed your life as an activist. I'm, I'm just going out on a limb here a bit, but I'm guessing that these young people in Afghanistan are, uh, are likely drawing deeply on their uh, Islam. As as uh, a source, a, a wellspring of the peace work that they're doing, and yet clearly, religion gets quite involved in in the other side of you know of, of this picture in terms of becoming a handmaiden to empire, uh, uh, a way of raising the standard of war uh, on the battlefield, uh, calling calling people to enmity calling people into identities that are very much over against identities and i mean the story you've just told me is a story of finding sisters and brothers like that are that are part of some kind of something that's very resonant with your own tradition uh on the other side of the world how do you how do you name that how do you think about that that dynamic of in terms of speaking into the conversation that's going on right now but like some people would like us to just get rid of religion entirely because they see it as just so so fraught and so prone to conflict and yet there's these counter stories and how do we how do we understand all that
2: well for me i i want to care about honesty hm there's there's a temptation i think to to set aside honesty at times and uh intellectual honesty yeah and it seems to me that in in almost every religion there is a, a a faith belief element and it involves quite often some measure of speculation and i i don't think i want to say well that's good or that's bad but i do want to say that if speculation becomes dogma and if people move into saying um my dogma is better than yours uh and my life is worth more because i adhere to this particular dogmatic belief and you don't then i know i'm out i don't want anything to do with that and i think it's 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 dishonest it's intellectually dishonest it doesn't acknowledge the speculation and the the the, the ways in which we really can't prove our our, our faith beliefs but i also think that at least in the United States, there is a dominant religion that we're not honest about. Mm. And I used to say, formerly, that dominant religion is shopping. And that shopping is the real um, faith belief that, that motivates and compels many, many people all across the United States. It's, you know, the the television and the uh, entertainment world, are like the prophets for it and the Ways in which people sense their um, values and, and, and their security has everything to do with, with, with being able to consume. But now I think it's we, we've moved into a different time, and I think that other religions, you know Christianity or Judaism or um, Muslim faith, can sometimes almost be a smokescreen and and what's really functioning is the dominant religion in the United States is militarism. Mm. People increasingly find their security linked to having the upper hand in terms of weaponry and uh the sense that somehow they'll protect themselves by being uh, part of a country that has more weapons and more military infrastructure and more bases and more capacity to, to flatten and crush other people. And that somehow, uh, we have a right to be in this kind of exceptional position wherein if we wage a war, it's a, um, it's a war that's a good war. It's maybe even yeah. got humanitarian purposes. Imagine that. Uh, such a terrible oxymoron. And and I think that, um, you know, it's not at all true that uh, people who are in the U.S. military as combat fighters are, are people that we care for and respect. I mean, some of them are so miserable that every single day in the United States, 22 combat veterans commit suicide. 22 a day. 22 per day. Wow. Um, people come back from the wars and, and they're never the same again and then they should be welcomed back into society and cared for and looked after but I don't think we should ever exalt the role of killing uh, and somehow say that because you can kill a lot of people and engage in slaughter this is somehow a, you know an exalted role, a justifiable role it's murder and, and the United States is guilty of having uh, developed, sold, stored, and used more weapons of mass destruction, more conventional weapons than any other country in history and on earth. And we are a warrior nation. Uh, our warlordism is the worst in Afghanistan, uh, where there are so many terrible abuses by, by very corrupt warlords, but the group that's got the most weaponry, the most expensive uh habits and 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 the most uh dangerous threatening weapons is is the United States. Yeah. So uh that I think gets excused because it, it's uh, it's almost looked upon as our god-given right to uh be dominant in the world and to to take other people's resources at cut rate prices and um Take other people's land uh, until pretty soon the planet is so threatened that we, you know, we don't recognize the greatest terror that we all face, and that's the terror of what we're doing in our overconsumptive and militarized ways to our own environment.
0: Hmm, that's quite an answer. Um, I'm uh, I'm remembering what I learned from Rene Girard about religion. One, one definition of it being really this, this phenomenon that divides, uh, draws a a distinction between quote, good violence and bad violence. And that the, and in his reading of the gospel, that it's, it's really, a a reading that wants to move us beyond that, that false dichotomy, um, which is hard to live with. (laughs) Honesty is hard to live with. Um, I, uh, I often remember that quote from uh I forget the name of the movie now but uh you you th- you want the truth you can't handle the truth you know this uh this United States uh general getting fuming mad for being uh being interrogated for for the truth of the the violence that he feels he must must commit I'm also just really struck with uh beginning with honesty uh as a spiritual principle, I. Uh, it. I was having a conversation with a friend recently where we, we, were, we were talking about about the difference between a desire for honesty and a desire for certainty in religion, and how, I mean, b- both of those are a desire for truth, in in a fashion, and and yet they lead us into very different uh, religious structures if we make certainty our goal rather than if we make honesty our goal. There was a joke at the at the symposium, the Clarence Jordan symposium that uh there was uh in that there was a, a forming going on of a uh, a mothers against Kathy Kelly kind of in the same vein as mothers against drunk drivers in terms of uh protecting young people from their uh getting involved with yourself because you're someone who has uh uh, drawn many a young person into uh, dangerous places that they they might not have gone if they hadn't been encouraged by such a charming granarchist as as somebody called you. You've talked a little bit about the the peace volunteers in Afghanistan. Are, are there other young people that you are connecting with significantly, and and just what tell me tell me about that dynamic in terms of. Speaking to millennials, um, at least that's what young people are. I don't know if it's millennials is maybe not an appropriate category for the Af- the Afghan peace volunteers, but, but speaking to that generation of young people, what are those, what are those conversations
2: like? What are they asking you? Mm, well, you know, it's interesting because I sense that I'm the one that's being mentored. Seriously. Uh, the, the younger people in my life are, um, you know, insisting blood doesn't wash away blood, and they're uh, seeking to create an environment where uh, people can live with equality. Uh, they, they they definitely want to eliminate the environmental damage and uh, the violence to Earth that they see going on and and they don't they they want to abolish war and and I see them taking very concrete steps but um also I you know much closer to home now just this morning I spent the morning with uh high schoolers in a suburb of Chicago and uh three of them were young Iraqi girls um they uh, had one of them had just come back from uh being in Iraq and another had um is seeking asylum here in the United States anyway these young women were right at the at the forefront of efforts to uh be on march 24th part of the uh, march for life but they also led a walk out in their own school and and they don't want mm. to see gun violence prevail they don't want to be subject to uh the strength of the national uh rifle association here in the united states but they can so easily make the connection with the uh weapons that assault people in their own homeland uh with with the weapons of war and so i think those kinds of connections that young people are making with great vitality and clarity uh that's the guideline um the the the, i guess the guide star if you will that, that i'd like to hitch my wagon to i i'm very very impressed with what we can learn from younger people and, and what we need to learn uh, especially as they sense how vulnerable they are moving into a planet that's jeopardized and um, being the recipients of, of, of practices uh, that are violent and wrongful and that can maim and kill and shed blood uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: so there's, there's, there's a great deal to um, to be learned we might, you know, who knows we might be getting closer to a tipping point than uh, any of us can even imagine. Yeah.
0: So you're you're evading the uh, the definition or the category I'm trying to put on you of mentor a little bit. Um, I I wonder if part of what you're telling me that your role in the movement that you're engaging in now, with especially as you relate to young people, is is really a role of noticing and affirming and and blessing. Young people.
2: Oh, I hope so. I mean that 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 seems like a good thing to do. I, I also think we can't forfeit our adult responsibilities. I guess I would say that there isn't within the United States there there is um I think an effort to distract people from taking on the responsibilities of um. Basically, retooling and rebuilding our society. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that distraction comes through sports and entertainment and And it's almost as though people become big children, you know, they they are are so constantly yeah. drawn in uh, to round after round after round of sporting events and, and entertainment events and you know uh, it, it, then their kids are sometimes told okay if you're going to be, have a happy childhood you have to be running around to all these sporting events and entertainment events and play dates and whatever and, and people get exhausted I mean they, they, they don't have time to slow down and think about the kind of world that we need to re- to, to fashion in order to survive. Um, but I think communities uh, can, um, find a great deal of courage in connecting with one another, assuring one another, you know, we can overcome our fears, we can control our fears, and we can actually find a great deal of enjoyment in, in kind of building this beloved community, what, what the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King
0: certainly is mm, yes.
2: calling people to.
0: Tell me, say a little bit more about communities connecting. Like, what what are some of the kinds of local enfleshed fleshed scenarios that you're talking about? When you when you talk about the communities deciding to to figure out how to live in a way that is not heading towards death, living together in a way that is moving away from violence uh, and towards belovedness.
2: Hmm. Well, I think this can take so many different forms. Um, I've been greatly impressed by what I've seen young people do in Afghanistan. But, you know, if you, again, I'm I'm sorry to be so focused on the United States, but this is sort of where I maybe know my way around a bit. And if you go to within any city or sizable town, in the United States if you go to the the neighborhood where houses are you know kind of run down and um, it seems like incomes are low you'll very likely find plenty of evidence of people who are doing the acts of hospitality making sure that people don't fall through the cracks uh, extending a hand of friendship uh, maybe living simply because they have to and don't yep. have very many choices and yet, you know, finding ways to live simply and share resources. And I, you know, I I suppose in some ways I'm thinking about um, a movement called the Catholic Worker Movement or um, the Jesuit Volunteer Corps or um, many of the um, earlier versions of VISTA volunteers. But, you know... um, there are people who are doing all of those acts of hospitality and shelter and care, and they don't put a shingle out on their door, and they don't send mm. out newsletters. I'm thinking about people in the communities hardest hit by mass incarceration in the United States. Yeah. You know, when yeah. when somebody is sent off for uh, a minimum 20-year sentence, the last time I was in prison, the median sentence for the men's prison was uh 27 years so yeah. so when the father or the the income earner or or the, or the mom is sent off to prison the neighbors and the relatives the aunties the grandmothers they come together and make sure that kids are going to be cared for uh, and, and and it's very demanding and people don't have a lot of economic resources in fact you know again when it comes to the stigmas of people once they are finally released from our terrible, wicked prison system, uh, there's family breakup and unemployment and uh, difficulty in finding housing and uh, j- just you know the stigma of having a prison record and disenfranchisement, all of that. And yet people have worked out ways to try and build community. Uh, and uh, th- th- this deeply impresses me, and I think it... Uh, it, it It's probably happening in refugee camps where people have fled wars in other parts of the world. Uh, And and when I look today at Gaza, you know, the world's largest open-air prison, they've been just Mm. horribly destroyed, afflicted by every kind of weapon in the Israeli Defense Force arsenal. And yet, uh, even as we speak, people are working to build communities that will line up and say, we have a right, we have a right to raise our voices. Uh, We we don't have anything like the weapon strength of the Israeli defense forces. They can tear gas us, they can uh, perform drone surveillance and target us, they can aim snipers at us, they can bomb our cities. They've killed many, many of our children. But we will persist in saying that we don't want to accept our lives as people imprisoned by cruelty and greed.
0: You know, I I'm, I'm I'm so struck by the that sense of those neighborhoods. I I got back recently from a book tour, and uh, the places that I visited were inner city in, uh, Cincinnati, inner city Indianapolis, uh, Fort Heights, Chicago. You know, marginal places, and. Like you say, places where you know housing values have have dropped, economically depressed, and and that's where that's where I there were communities of of courage and creativity that were were ready to host me. So that's yeah, and and I didn't, and, and none of them were specifically Catholic Worker. There were there was uh, there were some Catholic Worker connections in uh, in Cincinnati where I was. Yeah, that's good news.
2: I'm glad to hear that.
0: There's other things that I could talk to you about, ask you about, but uh, we're we're sort of running running to the the end of our hour. So I just want to thank you so very much for for the work that you're doing, for the vision you're upholding, for the stories that you are bringing home to us. I wonder if I might speak a a blessing for you. This is this is something that we've started doing, and and now we're just going with it as a habit here uh, at the ferment and by the way I, I also want to pass along my the sincere regrets of my co-host alana Lewandowsky. she was very excited to hear that i was going to be talking to you but she's uh she's launching uh her uh her thomas merton album at the moment and uh between that and her two young children uh that's kind of firing on all cylinders uh for her, for her existence right now but she sends greetings and uh yeah, she was just very excited that I was going to be talking to you.
2: Well, I look forward to learning more about the album. That's great.
0: Yeah, and uh, and so I, blessing is part of saying you know we're not doing this as objective journalists. We're we're talking to people that we love and admire, and uh, and speaking a blessing lets us uh, lets us put that energy someplace maybe other than flattery, which I don't know. Maybe there's a place for it, but generally that's that's not what what we want to be about so um is that all right
2: yes please thank you
0: all right kathy kelly we bless the fire in your belly a fire for justice for the ceasing of bloodshed for the speaking of truth for the befriending of the other for the uplifting of the downtrodden for the humbling of the arrogant for the repentance that opens us to the inbreaking of peace We bless your motherhood in this movement, your grandmotherhood of restless, clear-eyed youth. May the young activists you are mentoring grow up into strength and truth, and may they become beautiful soldiers in the revolution of love. Now may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you. Wherever he may send you, may he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you, May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen.
2: Amen, Marcus. And uh, may you be home rejoicing, God, as well. Thank you.
0: I am. I am home and rejoicing. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, thanks for this. One, two, three,
1: four.
3: of the day God bless
0: ferment
1: you are too
0: thanks for listening
1: until next time breathe consciously and with love
0: eat consciously and with love
1: tend the creation
0: attend the divine
1: and name the real consciously and with love
0: peace and all good